With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says prosperity remains elusive for too many farmers. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says record U.S. agricultural production isn't translating to increased earnings for the average family farm or ranch. In an address to the American Farm Bureau Federation Convention in Puerto Rico, Vilsack noted that 50% or more of American farm families had a negative income, even as U.S. agriculture recorded overall record profits over the past two years. Vilsack told those meeting at the AFBF gathering, quote, we need to create more opportunities, more revenue streams, more markets, and more help. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into today's show headlines. Farm Bureau's Johansson to serve in a national leadership role. California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson has been re-elected to serve another two years as a member of the board for the American Farm Bureau Federation. The board is made up of six executive members covering the U.S. Johansson will be the voice representing 13 western states. Johansson says, quote, It's an honor to continue to serve during this critical chapter for America's farmers and ranchers. We're working to pass a new farm bill in Congress to secure our food supply and to help our family farmers at a time when more than 50% are reporting negative earnings. I'm also committed to ensuring that construction begins on long overdue federal and state water storage and conveyance projects. He added, quote, For too long, our farmers have endured devastating water supply cuts during dry years. And now, after historic storms in California, we're watching uncaptured water simply flow into the ocean due to our state's lack of resolve for completing projects voters approved years ago. We can no longer accept inaction. Johansson was re-elected during the American Farm Bureau's 104th annual convention in Puerto Rico. And now here's Brian German with back-to-back agriculture news. While the overall outlook for California strawberries remains positive, the industry is continuing to assess damages related to the storms that came through the state. The majority of strawberry growers are only having to address minor storm damage. However, the substantial amount of wind and rain have caused severe damage throughout the state. According to the California Strawberry Commission, the storms washed away approximately 350 acres and nearly 1,500 acres are awaiting floodwaters to recede as of January 19th. Altogether, 1,840 acres of strawberries are looking at catastrophic losses, which could reach $200 million in crop, property, and equipment damages. Preliminary reports indicate that 572 acres in Santa Cruz and North Monterey County are looking at catastrophic losses, with 467 acres in Monterey County, 300 acres in Ventura County, and 500 acres in Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo counties. Researchers are looking at mitigation strategies to combat overexposure and sunburn in vineyards. Ph.D. candidate at UC Davis, Lauren Marigliano, has been evaluating the use of overhead film shading to protect vineyards from the scolding and hardening of the skin that can occur during extreme heat events. Oftentimes, what is found when those grapes are then turned into wine is the wines have a reduction in color because temperature has been shown to degrade the anthocyanin, which is a color compound in grapes. So the idea was to implement these shade films as an alternative strategy to prevent this degradation chemically in the grapes. So each of the shade films that we trialed alter the wavelengths of light that reach the grape canopy. And they have different percentages of UVA, UVB, UVC, and near-infrared light that reach the canopy. 
I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, we continue with my one-on-one interview with Congressman John Duarte of the 13th District, which includes several counties in Central California. He claimed the district with a win in November over incumbent Adam Gray. Duarte is a farmer and a businessman who grows almonds, pistachios, and grapes and owns Duarte Nursery. He was also involved in a lengthy battle against the EPA over its Waters of the U.S. rule. That battle settled in 2017. I asked him about bringing this agricultural experience with him to D.C. Being a California farmer, California is the most regulated state in the nation when it comes to agriculture, uh, and you've had to deal with quite a few regulations just in normal farming and then extra federal regulations as well. With this experience that you've had hands-on, how do you think that this is going to affect, good or bad, the decisions that you have to make as a congressman or projects that you're working on, bringing this type of experience to the table with you? Well, I think it's really important that we have actual real-world experience when we go to Congress. I'll be sitting on committees with you know, a few other rural farmers, some, some people from urban backgrounds that are more concerned about food access and, and food affordability, and being able to explain firsthand to all the, all the legislators involved how, you know, we all need regulation. We all need safe. We all need um, sustainable, clean environment and workplaces. But when these regulations put unnecessary burdens on producers, those those burdens get passed along straight to the consumers. And being able to describe with real-world experience how regulatory burdens translate to higher food prices and reduced affordability for working families, I think will be very valuable. I would like to see if you had anything in particular that you would like for our audience to know. Going out nationwide, um, not just in California, but as people from other uh, states look at, you know, a new California farmer coming into Congress, what would you want them to know? Well, I want them to know that American farmers out here in California, but really nationwide, are really up against the wall right now. Um, the cost of inflationary costs on their fertilizers, their fuel, their energy have all been at least as bad on the on for farm inputs as they have been for the American consumers. The regulatory environment is getting worse. The ability to export our crops is hindered by high exchange rates. I mean, the dollar is very strong right now, and that puts a burden on farmers that want to export. Our ports have not been operating smoothly, and that's been putting a burden on farmers and causing excess inventories that are depressing prices. All of these things are coming down to farmers, as well as the, you know, it's not uncommon to have a natural disaster of one type or another, but here in California, we've gone to 
I was talking to walnut growers yesterday. We've gone to flooding during the walnut harvest in 2021, the scorching heat that damaged the quality of the crop in 2022. So we've got to support these plant protein, nut growers, food production systems that, that feed America the, the foods they want to eat and push back on some of the nonsense in the media that we're hearing about humans eating crickets and bugs. I mean, we need to support the food producers that produce good, wholesome plant proteins that are demanded in the marketplace and have been hit with several challenges. Tariffs on nuts into India right now are at 120%. Um, it has nothing to do with nuts. It has everything to do with retaliation for some steel tariffs and other trade trade moves we've done in, in, in the U.S. So we've got to support our food producers. We've got to keep them... Make sure Americans have access to the the foods they want to eat and, and get through these times and, and continue to make sure we're developing a market-oriented, consumer-focused food system that um, delivers abundance and affordability to Americans. If you missed the first installment or would like to hear the full interview again, visit our website at agnetwest.com. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, a new USDA cattle on feed report indicates the cattle herd continues to shrink. The number of cattle and calves on feed for the slaughter market in the U.S. for feedlots with a capacity of 1,000 or more head was 11.7 million head on January 1st. That's down 3% from January 1 of last year. The inventory included just over 7 million steers and steer calves. That's down 4% from the previous year. And while the numbers of heifers and heifer calves was down 1% from last year, USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagum notes they are making up a growing percentage of the nation's feedlot inventory, thus confirming the downward trend in the cattle herd. On January 1st of this year, there were about 4.7 million head of heifers and heifer calves on feed, which was about 1% below a year ago, but did represent about 40% of the number of cattle on feed. And this number would be up of almost a full percentage point from where we were at this time last year, which would indicate you know, to the extent that those animals are in feedlots, they're not being kept for breeding. Now, placements in feedlots during December at 1.8 million head was 8% below 2021. Net placements were 1.75 million head. Marketings to fed cattle during December at 1.74 million head was 6% below the year before. Shagum says that number is below what many had expected. It was a little bit below what industry analysts were expecting, but I think some of that could have been attributed to the bad weather we had uh, towards the end of December. Uh, some of those animals may have remained on feedlot in feedlots a little bit longer just because packing plants were closed and road conditions were treacherous. Uh, and some of those animals may likely have, have gone to uh, market in January as opposed to December. So a little bit of a temporal shift possible there. So overall, the number of cattle in feedlots is coming down. And Shagum said folks were just waiting for that shoe to drop. And the American Lamb Board released its fiscal year 2022 annual report to inform mandatory lamb checkoff stakeholders of its work to mitigate outside forces and challenges and take advantage of opportunities ahead. ALB Chair Peter Camino said, even though many challenges were out of our control, it's critical that we keep driving forward as hard as we can to promote American lamb and the U.S. sheep industry. 
ALB has also identified three primary goals as it turns to FY 2023. The first is to continue to grow consumer demand for American lamb. The second is to prioritize research and education efforts to improve product quality and consistency, increase productivity, and grow the year-round supply of lamb. The board also wants to expand awareness and understanding, along with engagement and involvement of stakeholders in the American lamb checkoff. Camino said as the American lab industry looks to the future, there are several areas of opportunity. To learn more about those, go to their website, AmericanLamb.com. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Chocolate is getting even more popular. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. The global cocoa and chocolate market is seeing a growth spurt. According to a new research report, the global cocoa and chocolate market size and share was valued at $46.4 billion in 2021 and is projected to hit $69.1 billion by 2030. Cocoa and chocolate are made from the cacao tree and its beans, but the processes of extracting both products are not the same. Also, they contain different components. The cacao beans are harvested, roasted, and turned into powder, which can be turned into powdered cocoa or made into chocolate. In the cocoa-making process, cocoa butter is removed, while in chocolate, it is not. Cocoa is rated as a healthy product as it contains fewer calories, fat, and sugar. Meanwhile, chocolate is high in fat and sugar. Consumers' increasing preference in choosing chocolate confectionaries and growing demand for cocoa ingredients to develop premium-grade products is expected to drive the market's growth. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McCowan. In late 2022, the EPA and the Corps of Engineers released a final Water of the United States rule. The rule uses a definition that was in place before 2015 for traditional navigable waters and upstream waters that significantly affect those waters. It also contains other provisions unfriendly to farmers and other rural landowners. I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm to ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. At the end of 2022, the EPA and the Corps of Engineers issued a new WOTUS final rule. The new rule regulates upstream waters that significantly affect navigable waters. It also restores the significant nexus test for federal regulatory control through adjacency, which means that a significant nexus can be established by a shallow hydrologic subsurface connection to a WOTUS. That's farm field drain tile. This effectively disqualifies farm wetland from being exempt from coverage other than wetland that doesn't overflow and doesn't have a drain tile. And adjacency can be established by any factor that connects the wetland to a WOTUS. 
The final rule also makes it difficult to prove that prior converted cropland is actually prior converted, is vague enough to give the government regulatory authority over non-navigable ponds, ditches, and potholes, and gives no clear guidance on ditch maintenance activities. The U.S. Supreme Court currently has a case before it where the definition of a WOTUS is at issue. Perhaps the court will clarify the matter once and for all. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Among some of the Agriculture Department's recent efforts to invest in expansion of our nation's meat and poultry processing supply chain, we announced 266 plants and assisted them in expanding their sales beyond just selling in-state to interstate sales. We announced recently 22 plants in the first tranche of grants to build expanded and new processing facilities. The most recent example was announced by Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack in early January during his visit with delegates at this year's American Farm Bureau Federation Convention. We announced three additional projects that we're benefiting. A total of over $12 million in investments via the latest awards within the meat and poultry processing expansion program to those three facilities focused on expanding independent processing capacity. First, we're going to fund and help the International Food System of Ohio develop a new poultry processing facility in Ohio to expand significantly their capacity to produce new product. More capacity, more demand, and more good-paying jobs. An over $1.5 billion grant to Michigan turkey producers will upgrade water and wastewater facilities and refrigerated trailers. In order for them to be able to increase the capacity of their existing facility by 370,000 birds annually, and allow them over time potentially to double their capacity to nearly 10 million birds being processed. The third grant was received by Benson and Turner, which is a new hog and beef processing facility in Minnesota associated with the Wright Earth Indian Reservation to provide new opportunities as well. That facility will also include a storefront with the entire operation designed to take in locally grown livestock and give local producers opportunity to market their products by providing a USDA certified processing plant. Secretary Vilsack added, Each of these projects, as well as the other 22 projects, and more projects to come over the course of the next several months, will provide additional competition, additional value-added opportunity for producers, or jobs in rural communities. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. 
I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Well, near-term economic indicators point lower as corporate earnings calendar heats up now, and the Chinese New Year is now being greeted by many suggesting an explosion of COVID infections. Bottom line, economic analysts say that while most markets will struggle here, the dollar, gold, and treasuries should advance. Now, we mentioned last week that we could be at the beginning of the end of rising interest rates month after month and inflation as the Fed eventually pivots to more of a leveling of rates just above that 5% level. And that can still be happening, but that pivot point that we talked about, which supported the market a week ago, has lost a lot of its luster, we think, here now. Corporate reports that continue to miss quarterly estimates will weigh on Wall Street and, to a certain degree, in the South Street in Chicago. Well, the first ever Crop Nutrition Week getting closer, brought to you by AgriLiquid. It's a virtual week of learning. Online, February 6th through the 10th. You can learn more. In fact, you can register at CropNutritionWeek.com. CropNutritionWeek.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. We see grain and livestock futures oversold in here generally and building a good base of support longer term. That's our Bottom Line. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. Good day, everybody. Albert J. Hernandez, the untamed chef for Agnet West. Welcome to the California Kitchen, where you can learn how to cook from an award-winning chef in under three minutes or less. I'm your host with the most. Let's get untamed. A special thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Emusa USA, www.emusausa.com. Here you can find anything from pressure cookers to spoons, ladles, you name it, anything kitchen, you're going to find it here at amusausa.com. Great quality. They've been around for a long, long time. My pressure cooker is over 12 years old and it still works as good as the day I bought it. And I use that thing about two times a day. So I promise you, this is one of those really incredible recipes you're absolutely going to love. And this is a company you're absolutely going to love, www.amusausa.com. So my recipe today is vegan. Yes, I said it. Vegan pozole. Now, when you think of pozole, you think of chicken, you think of pork, you think of all kinds of other different meats that could go into pozole. However, the base for great pozole is all vegan vegetarian, whatever you want to call it, but the flavor is solid and it's always there. You're going to love this recipe. This is my recipe for guajillo vegetarian pozole. Let's get untamed. So the very first thing I need to do, our very first step is take two ounces of guajillo chili pods. I'm going to also add to that a half an ounce of onion. It could be a yellow onion, it could be a white onion, a purple red onion, whatever you want, but it's gotta be a half an ounce of onion and two quarts of vegetable stock. I'm going to bring the chilies. Now remember this, whenever you're working with dry chili pods, we wanna make sure the chili pods are clean. This is very, very important. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to seed them out, make sure all the dry seeds come out of the pod and I'm gonna put it into my stock. Now this is very important right here and you can't forget this at all always remove the stem. I have a lot of people who just throw everything in the pot. They don't remove the stem. And 
it's probably not going to kill you, but at the same time, it doesn't taste very good. And if I'm trying to teach you guys how to do something, I want to teach you how to do it right. So you're going to remove the stem from that as well. And what we're going to do is blend all of this after it's cooked for about a good 10 minutes, bring it to a boil, then bring it to a simmer. If it looks like the liquids went down a little bit, you can add a little bit more stock, but don't overdo it. I'd say maybe add two more cups at the most. Now what I'm going to do on the side is I'm going to prepare my cabbage, my onions. We're going to dice those. Our cabbage, we're going to do a nice julienne slice on that. Four ounces of fresh cilantro and get a lemon and cut it into four pieces. That way you got some fresh lemon you can squeeze on this as well. Now this is done in a pressure cooker. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my hominy. And uh, for hominy, I'm going to do three-fourths of a quart. So we're going to have quite a bit of hominy in there. Remember, there's nothing else in there. So the base of this pozole is a hominy. We're going to put that in our pressure cooker, and we're going to put the lid over the top of this. We're going to cook this for 20 minutes. I promise you, once it comes to a boil and you hear that pressure coming out, turn it to a simmer of a flame and just let it do its thing. This is going to be one of the most incredible pozoles you ever wanted. If you want, you can also add some roasted asparagus to it, but not necessary. But right now, asparagus is super amazing because it's in season right now. So I highly recommend put some of that asparagus in there and enjoy. I'm Albert J. Hernandez, and you all know me as the Untamed Chef from Agnet West. The numbers in USDA's new report on winter wheat seedings may have surprised the markets a little bit. And the surprise here is how big of a rebound that we had in winter wheat seedings. And it's a rare rebound. This from USDA's chief economist, Seth Meyer. Almost every season for years, producers have cut wheat acreage, but not for this crop currently in dormancy. USDA now reporting that growers put in 37 million acres of winter wheat. That's an 11% rebound from last season, 2% more than had been expected. Some of that rebound coming from unexpected regions. Some big percent increases in places like Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, you know, folks who aren't necessarily normally planting winter wheat, but I think when you combine better moisture conditions in there, high wheat prices, you know, maybe a little bit of change in what kind of crop insurance you can get for double cropping that might have attracted some attention to plant some additional wheat in those regions. Indiana farmers boosted seedings by 55% from last year, Ohio 27%, Illinois 44%. Growers there now have almost a million acres planted to winter wheat, most unusual. But Seth Meyer says the acreage boost, not just in the fringe winter wheat states. Even, you know, in places like Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, all of those folks showing year-over-year year increases in winter wheat seedings from the prior year. Of course, more acreage this time may not automatically give us more wheat at harvest time. In the west, the kind of the dominant areas of traditional winter wheat, that crop's condition rating going into dormancy was very poor. So we will want to keep an eye on it as it comes out of dormancy to see how its condition is. And so what that wheat might be used for. Will it be grazed out? What will the harvesting rates look like? Texas showed a big year-over-year -year increase. Part of that's, you know, you didn't get much of a cotton crop, so you had an opportunity. The fields were open to plant wheat. So I think it will remain another interesting year as we see this rebound in acreage, an even bigger rebound in acreage than the market expected, to see how this crop turns out. When will USDA make its first assessment of that? USDA Outlook Chairman Mark Jekinowski says that won't be uh, until May. 
May 12th, if you want to mark your calendar now. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. This week, we have another episode of The Voices of the Valley, and today's episode features a conversation about the adoption of ag tech advances and an area where development of new innovations might be overlooked. Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Voices of the Valley. This is uh, Dennis Donahue. I head up Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology in Salinas, and this will come as no surprise joined once again by my good friend and partner, Candace Wilson. Candace, hello. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Good. And this is actually a historic podcast because this is the first time we've had a guest back. And interestingly enough, by popular demand. So please, <laughs> please. So uh, let's let's say hello to Shana Day, who's the principal at the Colterra Capital. And we'll explain that remark in a minute. But Shana, welcome and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Dennis and Candace. It's great to be here dialing in today from rainy Turlock. So like most people in Northern California and throughout the state, we're getting our fair share of winter weather. That's right. More and than our fair share. We've, more than we've our forgotten fair share. what it looked like. Yes. Well, and we're certainly dating the time of year we do this. And, you know, the time of the year is pretty close to the beginning of the year. And so, Shana, you'll be uh, pleased to know. I mean, we always look forward to visiting with you again. But uh, it turns out your thoughts about 2022 and looking ahead, uh, folks were interested in that. And frankly, I can't think of a better person to do it again with your work on uh, roadmaps and landscaping. The ag tech scene is visit with you about how does 2023 look? But before we jump into that, just as a little bit of a refresher for our, our audience, just talk a little bit about what you're doing these days along with, and I loved your phrase when, because we're going to get into this, how do you actually do a roadmap? You referred to it as the dark arts. So we'll, uh, before we get into all that, just talk a little bit about your career and, and what you're up to. Well, thanks, Dennis. And it feels serendipitous, your invitation to join you on this now second opportunity to talk a little bit about the year ahead and the past year. So Shauna Day, I'm a partner with Calterra Capital and venture partner with Better Food Ventures. So real quick, you know, we do principal investing work, so early stage food tech and ag tech investing through Better Food Ventures and typically seed and, and pre-seed early stage companies. And then through Colterra Capital, you might recognize some of the market landscapes that we publish. I do some advisory work with bigger food and ag companies that are looking at the IT innovation ecosystem. And oftentimes that takes kind of a corporate development or sort of board strategy angle. And uh, I sort of often have to refer to myself as a recovering investment banker. So I spent the first 15 years or so of my career working with tech companies and advising in mergers and acquisitions and private equity and venture capital. And so I kind of bring some of that lens to a corporate development strategy or how people think about innovation, right? You've got some tools in the toolkit and it's 
you buy innovation, you invest in it internally, or maybe you partner or joint venture to access innovation. And so that's kind of a fun intersection for me. And, you know, it's given me over the years, the opportunity to not only look at hundreds of companies and business models, maybe even thousands, but also kind of get that pattern recognition. And I think in ag tech, that's been especially interesting for me because I'd spent a good portion of that time as a banker looking at communications infrastructure companies, mobile wireless companies, enterprise software companies. That actually lends itself quite nicely to the way that we've kind of seen this ag tech market evolve over the last decade. A lot of similar themes when you're talking about lack of standardization, lack of interoperability, no common operating systems. You know, before we had the iPhone or or the Android device, we had the same challenges in the mobility sector. So a lot of this stuff is just 20 years of pattern recognition. Good phrase. I like that one. I think I'm going to steal that. Use. I'm, I'm going to use pattern recognition somewhere along the line. So, but and without putting any pressure on you, before we jump into 2023, you know, thinking back to your outlook on 2022, how did you do? Well, let's see. I don't know that I anticipated the economic crisis that we found ourselves in. We were talking a lot about supply chain, and I think that sort of has held true. In 2020, during the pandemic, my partner, Britta Rosenheim, and I started to really dive deep into the supply chain technology marketplace. And that by that, I mean within food and ag from the farm gate to the loading dock of a retailer or a food service provider and those kind of constituent technologies, whether it's first mile, you know, people that are selling tech to packer shippers, logistics technologies, trading technologies, supply analytics, stuff like that, to food processing tech, right? ERP systems, warehouse management systems distribution and logistics technology. And finally, where I think we've seen some really interesting action is on the demand side. And that's a little bit more in in the food tech side of the world. But, you know, companies like Afresh and others are really helping food retailers predict and do sort of more optimized procurement. And I think that demand planning and sort of moving into an integrated demand planning where your demand side, the retailers and the supply side, you know, the producers of food and food products are really starting to get better data. So those things I think have continued to sort of gain some momentum at a good clip, but you know, we've always got a few wins and a few misses, but I think had I foreseen a financial sort of crisis, you know, mid-summer, I may have adjusted some of my more optimistic outlooks. Okay. Fair enough. Candice, do you have anything before uh, we uh, launch into 2023 outlook? I do. I just have one question. If you can share, no specifics, but areas, you talked a lot about progress in supply chain and demand planning. What were the areas where you felt like, wah, wah, wah? <laughs> um, well, this is a, I mean, it's more of a frustration. And I have that wah, wah, wah feeling because it frustrates me to no end. And it's the first mile. I mean, it's the part of the supply chain that's closest to the ag production, right? That is consistently the least digitized, kind of slowest to adopt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's to the industry's detriment, I think, especially, you know, when we're thinking about asset utilization, right? Just, I live in the Central Valley. So there's a lot of almond production, a lot of wine grape production, and you see the number of trailers sitting idle, you know, on the side of the road for hours or overnight or for days. And you wonder, well, that's a, you know, $500,000 million piece of equipment sitting idle, And how many other pieces of equipment like that are sitting idle? I'm giving you a very mundane, not very interesting example. But when we think about the role of technology and optimizing our assets, our resources, it just doesn't make sense to me why more companies aren't thinking about integrating those technologies. And it's just like, well, it's a cost of doing business. And I'm sure I'll hit on that theme a little bit later. But it's always surprising to me how much loss or waste operators are willing to assume is just a cost of doing business. 
This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Details on the National Clean Plant Network. This year, USDA is allocating funding for 28 projects through the Clean Plant Network. USDA Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs, Jenny Lester Moffitt, explains what that National Clean Plant Network is. The National Clean Plant Network is is really a partnership with states, with tribal nations, um, so that we're collectively together testing plant varieties for plant diseases, as well as treating those plants and then maintaining starter plants that are healthy and available to the industry for specialty crops such as fruit trees, grapes, hops, berries, citrus, roses, sweet potatoes, and and so much more that are free of targeted plant pests. Lester Moffitt goes on to explain the need to go into great lengths to protect U.S. agriculture from pest and disease. So much of what we eat or clothe ourselves is due to plants and because of wonderful things like global trade as well as um, as visitors coming in and out of the country of course, climate change. Um, there's movement around the world of different product. And so we run the risk of, of course, um, introducing uh, invasive plant or pest into our country that our, our crops are not used to. And so it's really important to protect our nation's agriculture from invasive plant and pest diseases. So this funding funds projects um, that do exactly that. $70 million will be allocated to support these 28 projects, some of which include a stone fruit and orchard commodity, pest detection surveys, as well as agricultural plant pest detector dog teams. To learn more about these projects and others, visit aphis.usda.gov. The UC Davis Viticulture and Enology On the Road Workshop is coming to Tulare in two weeks. The event will be taking place on Wednesday, February 15th at the Tulare County Cooperative Extension Office right across the street from World Ag Expo. Director of Industry Relations in the Department of Viticulture and Enology at UC Davis, Karen Block, describes some of what will be discussed at the event. So we have a lot of people that are talking about things that are very currently relevant, which are vineyard water use and stress, drought resistance, grape breeding for the dry and hot San Joaquin Valley. So again, things that are very important to growers. We're also looking at Anita Oberholzer is going to be presenting on her latest research regarding grape smoke exposure. And then Mason Earl is going to be talking about some of the work he's doing with early season crop estimation. More information on the workshops available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Rural job growth shifting to high-skill workers. 
Over the last two decades, the strongest rural job gains were in smaller industries that tend to employ high-skilled workers. USDA's Economic Research Service reports the highest growth was in the real estate industry. Also showing rapid growth was the administration services industry, which included office administration, facility support, business support services, security services, conventions and trade shows, and waste management and treatment. Other rural industries that grew over the past two decades were healthcare and social assistance, professional, scientific, and technical services, educational services, and finance and insurance. The growth of these industries represented a shift in rural production toward industries that employ higher shares of high-skill workers. Consistent with the shift, the percentage of rural college-educated workers increased from 21.5% in 2012 to 23.8% in 2019. However, these rates have remained lower than the share of the college-educated urban workers at 38% in 2019. NAFB contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.